So without further ado, it is my honor and my privilege to introduce you to the man who, who once was Vince McMahon's best kept secret, who will once again change the game. The power is Vince Russo. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. Uh, I am Brian Mann, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the big Russo-Bischoff return. Uh, This is an episode that can break people, and uh, it it has broken Nate. Nate's not here this week. It is me and just a guest test subject, which uh, I I can't think of a better person to join me on this one uh he he's a champion of shitty wrestling uh he's a former wwe uh, writer he hosts the mlw writers room and he is the man behind the twitter juggernaut wwe creative-ish robert carpellis is here uh how are you doing buddy uh, I'm doing i'm doing all right it's, it's carpellis i'm gonna i'm gonna put uh, heat on you from, i'm right at right at the top i'm <laughs> I'm coming at you, uh, gun, guns blazing here. On the, I mean, it's it is the satellite of hate. So uh, I'm thrusting a little hate at you from the very beginning. I need to be called on my shit, and I, I like that we even. Uh, I, I made sure before we even started recording that I got it right, and then as soon as I said the word Vince Russo, I just reverted to an infantile state. I, I can't blame you. It's it's um, it's a PTSD uh, <laughs> that all of us in the industry suffer from. Um, it's uh, it's something we we live with every day. We are we are the true heroes of the uh, of the world. Yeah, I don't think I don't see WWE making that that PSA anytime soon. Celebrating us as the heroes of the industry. No, but uh, they will do they will do a don't try this at home working with Vince Russo. <laughs> now, have you ever worked with you? You have you ever even come in contact with with the man? Nah, bro. Um, so funny story. While I was while I was there, um, when I when I started with the company, I guess a few weeks prior, uh, he was in talks to possibly come back. And what year and was this? This was two thousand five. Oh goodness. So they they and and in the in the current in the current landscape, you know, uh, Vince Russo revealed uh, a little while ago that he reached out to Vince McMahon to come back uh, to save. The product in, in 2017, uh, out of the goodness of his heart, and and that's kind of like I mean I can picture Vince uh, McMahon doing that only if he recreates the uh, that NWO promo of injecting cancer <laughs> into the like that would Vin, Vince Russo would would be uh, a great addition to the current product if if McMahon just had a death wish. Well, but yeah, because they brought him back. Uh- Briefly for like a day in 2001, yep. and that just fell apart instantly, which almost – like that goes to show you just how badly this guy has burned that bridge that he can't even – like 
of all the people Vince has brought back over the years, that this is one guy that's just completely off limits and he, he won't even consider it. Well, because Vince Russo is the one guy that's going to go in there, guns blazing, and try to call Vince McMahon out on his shit. And that's that's not a recipe for success um, it, to survive there. In, in 2001, that wouldn't have worked because Russo had just officially killed the WCW cash cow trying to come back in, in, in 05, trying to come back in 2017. Right now, this is a publicly traded company. This is a, a, a juggernaut of a, uh, of, a, of a brand. And to take the risk on Vince Russo, who has now torpedoed, uh, I guess, two and a half wrestling promotions uh, at this point, to bring him in, the, the board of directors of the WWE would have a vote of no contest against <laughs> Mr. McMahon. That would be the thing that would finally get them riled up, <laughs> would be yes. bringing back Vince Russo. So uh, obviously the show we're going to talk about today takes place in the year 2000, and I'm curious for you, what, where were you at in the year 2000? Were you watching uh, any wrestling at all? Were you watching WCW? Were you ever a WCW fan? So um, I've, been a, I've been a fan of, of some form or another of pro wrestling ever since I was a, a little, little kid. I was, the, I was the Vince McMahon dream because I got hooked early on by – you know the rock and wrestling uh, cartoon that they mm-hmm. had, the 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 giant LGN action figures, the uh, the the merchandise bonanza where it was like, okay, Hulk Hogan is is on par with any superhero I'm going to watch on TV. So I was a fan as a as a little little kid uh, and stuck through it all the way through. Um, I'm one of those those people that I can probably count on one hand the number of episodes of Raw that I've probably missed. So I never I never lapsed as a fan. The irony is, you and I have talked about me me coming on this show for a number of a number of months, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm really excited to be here in spite of what we watched today. <laughs> but I so I watched the episode of Nitro, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, I wonder what happened on Raw that week because yeah. uh, just to take it back a little bit, when I was at WWE, one of the shows that we were working on on uh, the WWE 24/7 platform, which was a fantastic show, was called the Monday Night War. Not the not the weird documentary where it's just a, a, a dick measuring contest, yeah. but where that with that one stock interview of Eric Bischoff with Titan Tron in the background gets played over and over again. The same clip. Um, but what we did was we aired the episode of Raw in its entirety and the episode of Nitro in its entirety with a little bit of a bridge in between of Michael Cole saying, "Hey, here's what was going on on Raw. Here's what was going on on Nitro. You compare which one is better." So I pulled up on the network the April 10th, 2000 episode of Raw, and the, the, the biggest shock ever, it was a Raw that I was at. Oh, wow. What city so would that it, have been? That was in Sunrise, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. Florida. Uh, actually, from the exact arena I'm currently recording from at this, at this moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally sitting in the same building that I was sitting in April 10th, 2000 um, for what was an amazing episode of Raw. Um, I know that's that's not a big surprise that during the Attitude Era they were going to have good episodes, but it was a a landmark episode for me because it was Kurt Angle's debut of the you can prance and you can dance, but when it comes to relations, keep it in your pants, which stuck with me for – I mean it's been 17 years and I can still <laughs> – I was still able to remember it before, but – what what struck me just on the whole, and we'll, we'll get into it when we when we dive into the uh, in, into the show is every, everything the pro, the production value the 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 camera angles the music the merchandise everything was so leaps and bounds better 
on Raw than it was on Nitro that it's it's staggering because yeah. you always hear Bischoff tell the story of well when I first came up with Nitro I sat down with a with a legal pad and watched Raw and wrote out everything that we can do different and better and it was like when they did this relaunch they sat down with a legal pad and wrote down everything they could do worse yeah, the dovetail has really happened at this point, and it's crazy because I think the year 2000 was the best year of programming for, in WWF's history. And then you have WCW going in quite the opposite direction. It was, it was, it was clear that there's always an intangible, uh, and it's not just for wrestling. It's uh, I'm sure you've experienced this on, on almost any production you work on. There is an intangible, and it's, it's the morale of the place. And in WWE, they actually – and this is going to sound crazy considering what's happening in the year 2017. But in the year 2000, it was a – it was a fertile creative ground where people were encouraged to go out and, and try new things and experiment. And you had all these talents being encouraged uh, to uh, experiment at the top of their game, whereas over at WCW, this had been years of these people being just beaten over the top of the head that it doesn't matter what you do, you will not get over. And the guys at the top being told, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll never not be in the main event. So these two philosophies are really dovetailing at this point. And yeah, WWE is doing the best thing they've ever done, and WCW is 11 months uh, you know, uh, left in their lifespan. So, so to that point, what I thought which struck me was every, every segment on Raw would come back with somebody who got a huge crowd reaction. So obviously, you know, you open with the Rock. I mean, the Rock is the Rock. You can't you can't compare it to anybody. But you know, you have that the comeback from break. Godfather's music, crowd goes nuts for Godfather. Come back the next break, Rikishi's music, crowd goes nuts for Rikishi. They knew they were going up against the debut of the of the Bischoff Russo era, which may have drawn eyeballs. And the hubris of Vince McMahon, he did Triple H Takamichinoku. Like he's just like, I don't care. You you you're not watching Nitro. We can. Put on, we're we're going to give you a Kayentai, uh, you know, uh, Triple H feud, and you're going to eat it up, and and then a a, a big boss man rock, rock main event. Yeah, and even just going back and watching those 2000 episodes, it's just we both know Vince is not someone who uh, is keen to introspection. He never really takes time. Like I I can guarantee that Vince has never watched a full episode of Raw after he watched it live and he was in the building. And I almost think that if Vince sat down and watched one an episode from the year 2000, he could learn so much about, oh, th- this worked, this was good. Uh, but that's just not how Vince is. Vince is just sort of a go-with-the-flow sort of guy, and he finds himself in positions without really, like, he never really stops and thinks and has a clear picture, at least now, of what he wants the product to be. He just sort of says, this is just how we do it now. Um, but yeah, I think it'd be interesting if, if, if someone could sit him down and say, Vince, you're going to watch one episode of Raw from the year 2000 and just see what you come away with. You would need to get him one of those little fidget toys just to keep <laughs> him to sit still. But uh, but enough complaining about the year 2017. Let's talk about the year 2000. And to set the stage, let's talk about the big news story that happened this week. Just three days after this episode of Nitro aired, Metallica sued Napster. I'm Kurt Loder with MTV News. Napster, the controversial music-swapping website, got a very special delivery on Wednesday when Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich showed up at the company's headquarters in San Mateo, California. On um, April 14th, Metallica filed a lawsuit against Napster for um, basically encouraging people to steal and trade on music. This was a big deal for me at the time, Robert, because I, I had just gotten the internet i'm i'm just learning about napster the fact that my family would all crowd around the computer and marvel at the fact that we could download any song in five minutes was 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 incredible uh were you a napster fan at the time and did you make the leap to limewire when you were forced to 
I was I was a huge Napster fan. I had a, a friend who, and this is I, in in the year two thousand, just to set the table. April two thousand. I'm I'm a junior in high school, um, getting getting ready for for you know senior year and then bigger and better things. And one of my buddies really started getting into computers and languages, and we all made fun of him. We're like, dude, we're all we're all going out. We're going to go to parties. We're going to go have a good social life. Yep. And you're sitting at home. Um, he's the guy that introduced me to Napster. Now, flash forward 17 years later, he works for Google and is one of the top guys doing Google Translate. So, you know, <laughs> I, maybe maybe I should have maybe I should have sat down and learned that instead of learn from him how to use Napster. But Napster was was I mean insane. Just the concept of it back then is like telling your your grandparents that you know or great grandparents great great grandparents that there's going to be airplanes. Like that was what it was to us. It was you can get music for free. And any song you want, and it you kind of learned that you could have been a computer coder because you started to learn. All right, here's 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 how I know what's going to be a good quality song versus a bad quality song. Here's mm-hmm. how I know if it's a bootleg for like you really learn all that minutia, and you downloaded crap that you would never listen to because you were stockpiling like you were like a Y2K survivor. Um, and then when Nap when Metallica did this. Everybody turned on Lars Ulrich, and he became the biggest heel in the world because he had the nerve to say, you know, hey, you should be paying for our music. Yeah, and and the thing that was just so crazy is that you see how – because this really was the first major industry that we kind of saw the internet destroy. And since then, obviously, we've seen that movies reacted a little bit better uh, with how the internet worked, and I think TV has adapted perfectly with being able to utilize the internet uh, to maintain a profitable business model. But since obviously song files are so much smaller, uh, it makes sense that they were hit first because uh, in the year, I mean, year two thousand, it would, it would sound impossible that you would download an entire season of TV. I remember um, when like Fahrenheit nine eleven came out. Uh, Michael Moore pretty much said, hey, if you torrent this thing, it's okay. And I was like, what? You can download an entire, an entire movie? That sounds impossible. That'll take you an entire week to do a thing like that. And who has that, that much space on their computer? Uh, but no, this was a thing that really hit hard. And uh, every week, uh, we typically will also say what the number one song in America was. But I think in honor of Napster, uh, we need to accept the, the music charts are dead this week and, and not talk about uh, what America was listening to on the radio. So jumping in here, I took notes, you took notes, uh, I guess we're just going to do a lot of talking over each other. If you want to jump in um, and something sticks out to you, because it, if I went bullet by bullet point on everything that happened in these segments, we're going to be here for four hours. Uh, we, we, we can only hit the high points, I think. <laughs> I think everything was a high point here. So let's let's go four <laughs> hours. Let's 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 Lawrence of Arabia the hell out of this. We'll do an intermission. Do an intermission. Uh, we'll, we'll just play jazz music for twenty minutes to get the <laughs> get the the folks ready. Um, but yeah, no, I I basically sat. I mean, anyone that that follows my my Twitter account, in order to watch Raw and, and to watch SmackDown live every week, three hours of Raw, two hours of SmackDown, plus a pay per view that happens every other hour. Um, it became second nature for me to just kind of live tweet what was going on. So it became sort of a a version of notes and I'm sitting here watching this alone, no social media interaction, nobody to DM, nobody to to, to message with. And I was like, I have to, I have to jot down what's in my brain or my mind's going to explode. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you found that positive outlet because uh, I actually watched this episode with uh, a friend of mine who had never watched wrestling ever before, and they actually really liked this. They also got bored after 45 minutes, but they enjoyed it, uh, having no concept of the genre or the, the art form. Oh, if you've uh, never seen wrestling before, 
this this could be fun to watch because you have absolutely nothing to compare it to. It's like watching a, a, a Japanese game show completely out of context. You're just like, oh, this is kind of wacky for a little bit, but you're not going to sit through it for very long. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to WCW Monday Nitro. We are live from Denver, Colorado. Tonight, the Mile High City has a unique distinction to host a landmark event in sports entertainment. For this, April 10th, 2000, is the night the world changed. So Tony welcomes us to the Pepsi Center in Denver, Colorado for an all-new Nitro. There's there's even a brand new set. They have really jazzed things up here. Uh, Scott Hudson is now on commentary, but he is never introduced. His presence is never explained. Why did Tony not just like slip in a quick line saying, like, our new broadcast partner, Scott Hudson's also here? This was just so weird for him to be thrown out here. And I don't even think he was – I think he was only doing Saturday night at this point. So the majority of viewers had no idea who he was. There were so many weird things to unpack for me just for the fir- within the first two minutes of, of watching of watching Nitro before anything actually even fully happened. I mean, they have the new set with this really really shitty pyro, and you have everybody in the ring standing there looking like just a bunch of guys, and they're all dressed like uh, they're in that the background of that one scene in Swingers when they go to the Hollywood Hills party. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's wearing just black pants and a, and, a, and a dress shirt. Nobody looks like a star. You can't identify who anybody is, and I'm 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 pretty astute in who most of these wrestlers are. And there were some guys I had no idea who they were. And then they started saying, "Here come some of the bigger stars." And Shivani, without irony, says, "Here come some of the bigger stars: Scott Steiner and the Wall," and yeah, put him on it, equal footing. This was uh, actually at this point, the Wall was maybe on higher footing. Scott Steiner has had maybe one match this entire year. Um, I mean, we've been watching this show every week. There were people in this ring. I had no idea who they were. Some of them was like, is that maybe the demon without face paint on? But I had no idea. It was also great that as the parade of uh, mid-card uh, heavies came out, Van Hammer somehow got it. <laughs> like, did Van Hammer yeah. just miss his cue earlier? Or were they actually trying to tell us that Van Hammer was on the same level as, like, Vampiro at this point? I, I think that Van Hammer was a, a a top star. You know what it probably was? They probably accidentally signed him to a huge contract and didn't <laughs> want to admit it. So they were just like, send him out there, make him look like a big guy. Well, that was the uh, that was the WCW special at this point. Um, so at this point, someone grabs a microphone and twenty minutes. The, 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 hold yourself steady for the next twenty minutes here. Uh, Jeff Jarrett starts things off by saying that when he came to WCW, he was Russo's hand-picked world champion, but the good old boys couldn't handle it. He then introduces the man who played the biggest hand in turning around WWF, not The Rock, not Steve Austin, Vince Russo. Vince Russo, the man that changed WCW as we knew it late last year, then kicked to the curb. He is back and in charge right now, and I am scared to death of what he's got to say. Russo then gets the mic, and positive, this guy's a very good promo. Especially considering this was the first time he'd ever cut an in-arena promo. He's a good talker. We can give him that off the bat. Really? You're going to make me praise Vince Russo? Well, uh, we're, we're going to be – I don't think he, we're going to do that again for the next two hours. So. So, here's, so, so the thing about Russo is he's naturally hateable when he talks, which is which is an advantage. And mm-hmm. he, he does have a little bit of a charisma to him. What what absolutely, just as a, as a former creative writer, just as someone who's watching the product that really pissed me off was – You've already mentioned WWF and said it by name, which is something that you just don't do. And then Vince Russo starts talking about how I beat Vince McMahon at his own game. So it's like you're setting up a Vince McMahon, Vince Russo feud that we're never going to see. 
Right away, Russo is talking about WWF. He says uh, he gave six years of his life to WWF, but he um, but he's now here to beat Vince McMahon. Russo blames the good old boys for getting in his way before, and uh, he says that he left because he heard about the change in direction and he knew it would suck. I wasn't the only one who knew. Benoit knew. Guerrero knew. Saturn knew. Malenko knew. Douglas knew. And they left. They're gone. TNT might as well have just put a countdown clock in the corner of the screen, letting you know that Raw started in an hour. That's exactly – it's funny. It's exactly what I wrote. I'm like they, they should just be flashing a giant sign saying put on Raw, put on Raw, put on Raw. <laughs> you have Vince Russo saying this show sucks and all the guys that you love are on Raw. But stick around here because we have a bunch of faceless people in the back that you don't care about uh, and, and yeah. just enjoy them. And Brian Knobs is cackling behind him like, yeah, this is going to keep me tuned on. <laughs> So, oh, I also uh, love that. Sorry, I also love that Vince Russo points out that the inflated egos are gone. <laughs> uh, Russo says that it's uh, all over now because he is in charge. Then, over the loudspeaker, Eric Bischoff is heard saying, "Are you done yet?" Silver Fox Eric Bischoff makes his way to the ring, and he hugs Vince Russo. Uh, somehow, this was only the second stupidest hug between Bischoff and someone named Vince. The hug gets zero reaction, though, because these two characters have no history at all. If anything, Bischoff actually got a babyface pop when he came out, and then it just deflated. He didn't turn heel. The audience just didn't give a fuck about him anymore once he hugged this guy. Bischoff says he and Russo have a lot in common because they were both screwed over by the good old boys. Uh, Robert, were you wondering who the good old boys were? Because I was younger when I saw this. I assumed they were referring... Like, this was a reference to a stable that I didn't know. So I, I, I was trying to rack my brain because it's, it's – when it comes to who was running WCW, I mean it's, it's, a long, it's like that when Jericho unveiled the list of 1,004 holds. It's – there's so many different people. I didn't know which good old boy network was in charge at – in 2000 that was, that was screwing with them because I was pretty sure it was – Bischoff was the guy in charge. Right. Um, so I, I don't I don't remember which good old boys it, it was, um, but as a fan, I shouldn't care. And they didn't give you a reason to your point to care because right. under the under the good old boys um, that were running things, you got a bunch of stars, and under Russo and Bischoff, you've got a bunch of just like like tan shirt wearing nobodies standing around the ring looking bored and pissed off. This crowd had no idea what the fuck they were talking about. I, I think you could maybe get away with a show like this today when everyone watches, like, Twitter at the same time. And you can – I mean they have entire storylines. The entire Daniel Bryan storyline was built on them not pushing this guy. And they did it in such a way that the on-screen product reflected what was happening behind the scenes. And both you know, internet smarks and casual fans were united behind this guy. That's not happening here. This is we're being told that the only people the crowd cares about are the main villains and fuck them, but then at the same time, this is just a sea of anonymity behind these two writers. But it's villains, quote unquote, coming out there saying, We know you loved Benoit Guerrero Malenko and Saturn, and they left because the bad people that were running this company were destroying it. We're here now to save it, to stop the talent you like from leaving, but we're the heels. Right. The entire the theme of this show for me was I don't know who's a babyface and who's a heel. And bear in mind that you know when you watch Raw in 2017, Michael Cole hammers 
over your head a million times everything that they want you to know. Mm-hmm. In, in Nitro in 2000, when you have your remote control and you're flipping back and forth between Raw and Nitro, you're dealing with a casual fan who might not know the minutia. You as the announcer have to tell people who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and why you have to care. And the guy that was killing this segment for me more than anybody was Mark Madden. Mark Madden, in one breath, was this is the worst thing that ever happened. We're all going to get fired. And then it's I love Russo. I love Bischoff. And then it's this is a disaster, and this is going to be the end of WCW. So I'm getting inconsistent voices, and when you can't trust your narrator, you're going to completely lose the narrative. I think the thing that's the most sort of frustrating from from my standpoint, uh, having actually watched every episode before this, is that there are mid-card characters that are actually getting over. The last couple months of shows have not been very good. They've been very stale, sometimes ludicrous pro wrestling, but they're at least still pro wrestling. You got guys like Vampiro who is who is getting over. You got guys like Booker who are getting over and Billy Kidman. And tonight, simply because of their age, they're now heels. And it just they throw so much work away on this episode. And I can see how if you're just a just the writer, you could maybe see how a page one refresh is interesting. But from the standpoint of getting these characters over and promoting them to an audience, this was so frustrating and confusing even besides everything you just brought up in terms of well are the good guys the good guys or the heels the heels i don't know uh, it's all convoluted the fact that people that were legitimately baby faces two weeks ago are acting like heels and vice versa you have uh rick flair and uh lex luger who are depicted as baby faces on the show that were heels two weeks ago uh, uh two weeks ago uh sid vicious made this big uh heel turn against uh hulk hogan and now i don't know what to think about any of these characters and what's frustrating is not only do I not know as someone who's been watching the show, but it's clear the writers don't know either. No, because they, they show you know in the back um, Sting, Sid, Page, and Luger all hanging out together watching this on a monitor. So exactly. for you to be like, oh, Sid's a heel and Luger's a heel, and, and like, are we supposed to think – and this is what WCW was always guilty of, and they did this a lot, and they, they even did this a couple times in the show. Shivani would always kind of point out – Hey, what you're seeing is usually fake, but this right here, this is real life. So maybe it's you're not looking at Sting, the character. You're looking at Steve Borden watching the back because he wants to know if he's going to be fired or whatever it may be. But they don't even hammer that point home. And speaking of those guys, uh, you just mentioned they are all backstage watching this promo uh, on a monitor. Uh, it's great. The, these massive uh, <laughs> these massive main eventers are all crammed around one 12-inch uh, monitor. We couldn't get them like a big screen TV in their own locker room or something like that. Uh, and while this is going on, Eric calls all of them the biggest mistake he ever made. And he then apologizes to everyone in the ring for holding them down for so long and that this is a new WCW now. Well, that brings out the main eventers. Uh, all previous feuds have been completely forgotten. Uh, uh, bitter rivals are sitting next to each other on the stage. Bischoff says that they actually look like they showed up for work today. He rags on Sid for his softball games, Lex for his golfing, DDP for his book tour, and Sting for his movie premieres. As Bischoff is tearing apart all of these old-timers, behind him is Brian Knobs. So <laughs> ignore the disconnect of this guy who is only four years younger than the people on the stage. What I love is Bischoff is there pointing out that the biggest stars on their TV show are people who don't give a shit about being there and would rather be anywhere else. So you as a fan feel even dumber for being a, a Sting fan or a DDP fan because they don't want to be there, and it's being hit over your head that – They'd rather be somewhere else, so you are even more of a mark for liking them. DDP gets a mic and tells Bischoff to step off. Bischoff tells DDP that if it wasn't for him, DDP would still be working in a bar. 
Bischoff says he rebuilt Sting's career, and he's the one who gave Lex Luger money when Vince McMahon wanted no part of him. Again, uh, you know, uh, Madden just breaks into scream. It's all true. He didn't just he didn't just say he gave Lex Luger money. He pointed out proudly that he made Lex Luger a multimillionaire. Which I think speaks more to Eric Bischoff's judgment. <laughs> exactly. Like that's burying himself that I spent tens of million dollars on you. Uh, Russo then gets back in the fun and calls Ric Flair a piece of shit on his shoe, and Russo promises to scrape that piece of shit and flush it personally tonight. Russo then does the first real thing of any substance in this entire segment by asking all of the champions to surrender their titles because the belts are now vacant. So, glass half full, the Harris brothers are no longer tag team champions. Uh, World champ Sid tells Eric that he has to come down to get his belt if he wants it. Eric... Totally killing Sid's credibility as a giant, shows zero pause in doing so, gets in Sid's face and tells him that uh, he's going to fire him if he beats him up. Bischoff then taunts Sid with the infamous line, what's the matter, Sid? Can't find your scissors? So I wrote down in my notes uh, everything you just said because I'm watching this pretty cold where I'm going, Bischoff completely emasculates Sid, gets right in his face, and Sid's supposed to still be you know, some version of Psycho Sid – Takes the title, Sid just kind of puts his head down sadly, and then Bischoff brings up the scissor incident, which a casual fan watching, especially in Denver, has no idea what they're talking about. It's not 2017 where there's a million shoot interviews. This is 2000 where you know maybe one-tenth of your audience watching is going to understand what's going on, but most people just saw your big giant monster champion uh, be completely deballed by Eric Bischoff. Well, not just that. This is an era before uh, really message boards are taking off in a massive way. There's no YouTube. There's no Twitter. So even if you were a subscriber of the Wrestling Observer newsletter and you heard about this story that happened between Sid Vicious and Arn Anderson eight years ago at a show in Germany, you're not being reminded of it every week. You can't go watch the shoot interview of them talking about it right now. Maybe Meltzer wrote about it eight years ago, but I even wonder the number of people that were aware of this instantly recalled it. Maybe people that worked with them and were there knew it, and that's why Bischoff's saying it. But I, less than 1% of the viewing audience had to have any idea what the fuck Bischoff was saying here. And the audience responded in kind. So Bischoff repeats the line, and again, no reaction to it. Uh, Sid finally hands over the belt, and Eric says that they will decide the real world champion this Sunday at Spring Stampede. And uh, that more or less ends the segment for us. It, it took 20 minutes. Uh, they did some resetting... Um, Glass half full. I think everyone uh, that performed here was good. Everyone cut a good promo. This was executed well. It was just a, a, a shit idea. Exactly. You were trying to make this seem like a fresh restart, and all you were doing was retreading ideas of the past, pointing out how fans were stupid forever buying in into the product, especially the last several months that was a complete train wreck, and most of the young, hot talent that's being presented were just sort of very generic in favor of, let's focus on the old guys. At the announcer's table, Scott, Tony, and Mark wonder when Flair and Hogan will arrive. Then, almost as if on cue, Hogan arrives late for work. Sting finds Hogan taping his wrists in his locker room. Sting warns the Hulkster that Eric Bischoff was running him down in the first segment. Hogan just rolls his eyes and says he'll go take care of it. Sting, as Hogan leaves the room, Sting tells Hulk he's not ribbing him. The Hulkster looks back and with a steely gaze says, I'm not ribbing either. Everything about this was amazing. What I love is 
you first of all, just from an optics standpoint, and this is going to come up about four or five times during the show. Bischoff and Russo are supposed to be in control of this show in the same way Vince McMahon or the Mr. McMahon character is running Raw. And if you have an all-hands-on-deck talent meeting and Hogan doesn't bother to show up until 20 minutes into your show, you've already established to the crowd Russo and Bischoff have no real power. And what I also like is Hogan is sitting in his locker room taping his wrists. Yeah, is that, just a cash, is that just a hobby of his, I guess? As if you're supposed to believe in 2000, Hogan's working an, un, 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 an unadvertised match on Nitro. Or that he would care to prepare ahead of time. <laughs> both, are, both are hard to believe. Uh, so we do have our first match of the night. It is Diamond Dallas Page versus the Total Package. Uh, it's announced that there's going to be a one-night tournament and the winner of this tournament will face Jeff Jarrett for the world title at Spring Stampede. That's some pretty good heel heat on Jeff Jarrett. It would have been great if they uh, announced it ahead of time or told the live crowd that's what was going on. Uh, DDP gets his usual entrance, but there's no pyro, and his music gets cut halfway through. He goes for the diamond cutter bang thing, and, and nothing happens. Uh, a WCW fuck-up? Nope. It is explained that Russo and Bischoff are... Uh, taking out all the bells and whistles and forcing the established talent to look like jobbers tonight. Um, the exact same thing happens to Lex Luger, uh, his opponent. And uh, yeah, again, uh, this I, I I think this was like an interesting note. Again, this if this was just a TV show about wrestlers, this could be interesting. It could also maybe work if you did it on Lucha Underground. But I think you're in an arena full of. 5,000 people. They don't know what's going on here. This this is getting no heat to the crowd and just it's confusing this audience. It would have been fine if uh, Paige comes out to no music. It's the fact that it got cut off. So if you're live in the arena, it just looks like an, a, a glitch. And what really blew my mind was Luger's a heel at this point. So his big pose down in the middle of the ring is supposed to get him heel heat. But as a viewer, you're supposed to feel bad that the, the new powers that be are depriving him of his spotlight and music to do his heel shtick. And in one of the most unintentional amounts of comedy was they point out that Lex Luger is all about his entrance, which makes me think in 2017 he would be the most over guy because the only, <laughs> thing, only thing crowds care about in 2017 is great ring entrances. So uh, this was uh... – this was not a good match. Uh, I, I don't think we should spend too much time really breaking down any of the matches tonight because none of them were good. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, my assumption here is that none of these guys actually knew what they were doing until the show started, and so they just had to put these matches together on the fly. So we get a lot of punch-kicking brawling this entire evening. I, don't, I can't think – there's not a single moment of memorable wrestling on this entire show. There were th – these guys did not want to take a bump, and I think the strangest thing about this – Well, that is, is the Lex Luger special at this of point. Of course, but, but just everybody. But the strangest thing about this match is when I say I don't know who the baby face and the heel are is towards the uh, toward, towards the finish and, and tell me if I'm stepping on your toes or not. You, you have you know uh, Buff Bagwell come out during the match, which side note, they say that Buff Bagwell personifies the new blood, which explains why WCW sucks. Um <laughs> While Luger is distracted by Bagwell, Paige, who's the babyface, low blows Lex Luger. Then Buff Bagwell sexually assaults Miss Elizabeth by kissing her, and Luger's distracted by the sexual assault. So Diamond Dallas Page takes advantage of that to hit a diamond cutter to pin him. So yes. DDP, the babyface, uses distraction and Buff Bagwell forcibly trying to kiss Miss Elizabeth to win. I do got to take offense to one thing you said, which is which is Buff. I'm assuming you're not a Buff Bagwell fan. 
I think Buff Bagwell has a a time and place. I think when he was the handsome stranger in uh, GWF, he was yes. fantastic. Um, the American Males theme song is is a national treasure. I think Buff Bagwell as a as a shitty comedy heel is okay, but that's not the first guy you should be promoting to your fans. It, the 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 babyface announcer saying that he personifies the new WCW that you should get behind because he's a a terrible wrestler who's all look and no substance. Yeah, but I mean, he did get a reaction when he came out, and I think the I'm 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 a big Buff Bagwell fan, and as he gets more attention on these shows coming up, people are going to see that more and more. I I just think this guy was always. He was never booked properly. He was never booked to his strengths. And even over the last couple of months, we've seen this guy's been so wildly inconsistent. He's been a misunderstood baby face. He's been a womanizing heel. And there's just no consistency with him. And I think that if someone had actually sat down, just had a had an honest talk with him and said, these are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. Here's how we're going to book. Here's how you need to improve. And it really stayed on track with this guy. I think there was something to Buff Bagwell. And I think there was a lot of unrealized potential there. And I know, like, I'm ruining my credibility by saying all of this, but I think there was something there, especially for Southern wrestling fans. I'll give you that. I think that there was, I think if a guy like Paul Heyman got his hands on Buff Bagwell and highlighted his strengths of the fact that he's smarmy and has a, a, a good physique and hid the fact that he's not a great wrestler, you could have got some serious mileage out of him. Backstage, Hogan is searching for Eric Bischoff. Elsewhere, Kurt Henning stops Russo and asks why he isn't getting a shot at the world title. Russo says that he can face Jarrett tonight, and if he wins, he will get the Spring Stampede shot instead. Just want to point out, this is – so Kurt – I must said Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect's a different guy who, who stopped existing. Uh, this guy, Kurt Hennig, who looks a little bit like Mr. Perfect, just arrives – and like, and this is like the third or fourth segment of the show, and he's supposed to be a Russo guy, so he blows off his big meeting and then shows up and is expecting a title shot. Well, he's also in the middle of the pack here where, yes, he's an established star, but he's a jobber in WCW. So is he a millionaire or is he new blood? Who knows? He's too old for one, not quite established enough for the other. So he's just in, in no man's land here, unfortunately. Neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> Back in the arena, Tank Abbott comes to the ring and he says... <laughs> <laughs> just the mention of his name. So Tank Abbott, God bless him, um, from his two seconds of fame on Friends. Um, <laughs> but he sounds like he's drunk and holding it a belch every time he talks. It. I do not understand why they asked this man to ever talk, ever. It's not a requirement for this character. <laughs> and then when he does talk, he proudly boasts that he can't wrestle. Yep, he says he doesn't know the difference between a wristwatch and a wrist lock, and he says that he came to WCW to face Goldberg, who was Goldberg easily the most over guy on the night show and was never seen. Tank promises to just beat up innocent people until Goldberg faces him. He even promises that he would beat up Mother Teresa. Never explains why Mother Teresa would be at a WCW taping. But the best uh, part of that was he's a, a innocent victims like Mother Teresa, and then there was a pause because he couldn't think of a second person on the planet <laughs> who's innocent. Who's innocent? <laughs> He then wanders around the ring before grabbing Mark Madden and tearing off his shirt and just beating the shit out of him in the ring. Mark tries his best to stay covered, but it's no use. An utterly embarrassing moment for Mark. And I think the real shame here is that Madden wasn't on commentary for this because this had to have been the biggest set of tits we've seen this entire year on this programming. And he would have gotten a real kick out of it. So from uh, I'm putting on my creative hat. 
just for a moment to point mm-hmm. out the complete illogical nature of Hank H- Hank Abbott. <laughs> Hank Abbott's Tank's twin uh, Hank Hank's Abbott. brother, yes. Uh, that Tank Abbott is supposed to be this this really douchey, awful heel, and the one guy he beats up is the heel announcer you're supposed to hate? Yeah, which... Do they I, not understand at all how how heat is supposed to work? If you are a monster heel, you can pick on somebody who's who's small and and have them you know beat them up. But it has to be somebody the fans like. And now it's like, hey, Tank Abbott's great. He just beat up Mark Madden. That'd be like in 2017 trying to get somebody over by having him beat up David Otunga. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this was a glass half full situation where yes, we had to put up with. Mark Madden shirtless, but then this also meant we had no Mark Madden the rest of this show. Uh, I don't know why that decision was made. He would be back the next week. Russo likes the guy, Uh, so I don't know why they did this or why they did it so early in the show. Now, did they ever – and maybe I'm – I don't remember. Where was Goldberg at this point in time? Uh, Goldberg was still out because he had uh, ripped the shit out of his hand by breaking the limo uh, uh, windows <laughs> that weren't that, gimmicks. So yeah, he I was thought. supposed to be yeah he was supposed to be the big babyface against the NWO. Goldberg goes down for six months and then the NWO just disintegrates. Uh, so yeah, this is where we're at now. So yeah, massive Goldberg chance from the crowd, and this has been this has been a staple this entire year. People love Goldberg, and I don't think. WCW has really ever explained to the audience that he's not coming back for a while, and this is kind of the downside of having all these surprise non-advertised returns is that people think that maybe Goldberg will show up this week, which um, I, I, is good to an extent, but it, it, I think it just leaves everyone disappointed after after a while. I think if it was – if I was writing – which was a terrible thought to begin with. If I was writing this in 2000, what you should have done is take advantage of the fact that the fans love Goldberg and just have Tank Abbott point out, I'm the only real fighter here. I'm the only guy that, that is indestructible and let the audience fill in the blanks and then start a Goldberg chant rather right. than Tank Albert, Tank Abbott mentioning him. I keep wanting to change this guy's Tank name. Tank Albert. Tank Albert. Uh, <laughs> if he was an NXT, that would have been his name. Um <laughs> But you, you don't you don't mention the guy that's not there who's super over unless you have a, a real payoff for it. And you could have just let the fans fill in the blanks and just have Tank Abbott coming out there week after week saying, you know, he's he's the unstoppable guy. And then when Goldberg's ready, bring him out rather than having Tank utter his name, because that was the only thing wrong on this whole show. Only thing. Flawless series, except for the way they booked Hank on this episode. <laughs> Backstage, Jarrett complains to Russo about having to face Henny tonight. Elsewhere, Kidman is storming to the ring against Tori Wilson's wishes. Another place backstage, Hogan finds Bischoff and he wants to know what's going on. Bischoff says people are just stirring things up and they go into Bischoff's office. What's amazing about this part is Bischoff tells Hogan, don't believe what Sting said, as if Bischoff forgets that this is a television show where anybody can watch exactly what Bischoff said in the ring. Well, Bischoff knows Hogan. They've been friends for a while. Hogan's not watching a segment he's not in. <laughs> That's very true. In the arena, Kidman comes down and says that he's been held down by the egomaniacs for years. He then brings up Hogan's recent comments. What recent comments? Well, don't worry. They do nothing to explain them. Uh, what had happened was recently Hulk Hogan had gone on the Bubba the Love Sponge show, and it said that Kidman couldn't draw fleas at a flea market. This came out, and... 
Hogan was getting shit. So then Hogan then goes back on the show and says, oh, don't worry. We're going to work a program pretty soon. I was just doing it to work up heat. So so even if it was legitimately for a program, which it wasn't, he then came and said, it's bullshit. Don't buy into it. So Ace is there, Terry. So some of the things that just set me off here uh, from a production is Billy Kidman comes out with a pyro setup that he doesn't even acknowledge. So nope. why why do the pyro? It shows that pyro means nothing, and again, as a fan, you shouldn't care about pyro when in 2000, that was like the biggest thing. Like It was huge that a guy like Chris Jericho showed up at WWF and got and got a pyro display. Like That was how they said, this is a guy you care about, and Kidman just storms out there, no-sells his own pyro, and then I was totally confused because I thought Hogan was a babyface, and you have Kidman cutting this this plucky babyface promo about I have heart and I have talent, and I'm not going to let this this piece of crap hold me down. So now, as a fan, I'm thinking, well, now we should really hate Hulk Hogan. Exactly, and not just that, but he comes out again, a guy completely ignoring his his character. He comes back, he's got his slick back hair in a ponytail. He's wearing a, a black dress shirt, black pants, and you're taking these these. These characters that, yeah, let's say people care about these characters. Well, you're throwing the characters away, and all of a sudden this isn't Billy Kidman, the performer. This is just Billy Kidman, the dude. There's a difference between watching a uh, a Tarantino movie and a making of a Tarantino movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not Vincent Vega. Uh, it's, it's John Travolta, and John Travolta has his appeal, but he's not Vincent Vega. And that's the thing that's so crazy here is that you have these people coming out and supposedly talking about their real characters – well, the audience doesn't know they're real characters. The audience doesn't give a fuck about them as real people because they haven't been introduced to them. So we have Billy Kidman, who up to this point is maybe third, fourth, you know, up-and-coming babyface in the company, and he has completely thrown away this character that we've known and loved for, for years. So Kidman doesn't – can't cut a promo. Uh, he talks like a guy talking, and then the irony is when Hogan gets in the ring and they're, and they're you know, face-to-face, Hogan looks like a massive, massive star. He looks like a guy you would build a company around, and Billy Kidman just looks like some dude that wandered in there. So yeah, so Hogan uh, at this point has uh, 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 come out of Bischoff's locker room, and uh, he then uh, sees a monitor. He heard his name, so he must (laughs) see what's on this television. Uh, Kidman uh, calls out Hogan to prove that his balls are as big as his bald spot. Uh, this provokes uh, Hogan to come out, and yeah, you're right. They uh, He looks like a massive star next to Billy Kidman, who has shed his iconic wife beater and jorts and is just, you know, dressed like the manager at a steakhouse. And <laughs> Hogan says that Kidman is out of his league and that he's pee-whipped. Not pussy-whipped, he's pee-whipped. Everything about this screamed, Hulk Hogan is a massive heel, and if underdog babyface Billy Kidman were to take him down a peg, it would make Billy Kidman a massive star who would make WCW a lot of money. Instead, you have this convoluted situation where Hogan's trying to go after Bischoff, so Hogan's the, the, the babyface engine driving this show of, I'm, I'm not going to let this th- these evil guys run this thing, and I'm, I'm going to take back over. And then he goes out there and basically just bullies Billy Kidman. I mean, it is JBL's dream segment. So uh, at this point, an impromptu match has started. So you know what? No bell rang, but let's go ahead and have a Hogan bump challenge. Are you aware of the Hogan bump challenge, Robert? I, I am. You're the guest. You can wager first. How many bumps going into this did you think Hogan was going to take in this segment? I, I won't even necessarily say for Billy Kidman. I'll just say how many bumps do you think he would take by hook or by crook in this segment? So knowing that it's incredibly important that Billy Kidman looks credible, 
knowing that um, all the the odds are stacked against Hulk Hogan and that he needs to get a major major beatdown of a high level, um, I thought two. You said two. I was thinking zero. <laughs> I thought there was no even if he even if somehow the heat is got on him, he is going to fall to his knees and roll over to that back. So these two are just punching all around the ring, throwing people into uh, guardrails. Uh, the dynamics are just all off here. Hogan is ragdolling Kidman, and there was no way to, to root for Hogan here. His back was not up against the wall. There was nothing uh, here. Uh, Bischoff then makes his way down, carrying a chair. Bischoff then blasts Hogan with an unprotected chair shot to the face, and Hulkster takes a bump off of this for his old buddy Eric. So we get one bump. Not only that, but we also get a blade job. Hogan is bleeding as well over this. Bischoff tells Kidman to pin Hogan, and he does. Bischoff counts the pin, so Kidman wins this unofficial match. I think this would also be the only heat he would get on Hogan over this entire feud that's upcoming. Uh, And just so you didn't think that this was to get Kidman over, the announcers flat out tell you Bischoff is the story here. I mean, watching this through 2017 eyes, it was startling to see someone take an unprotected chair shot to the head. It was startling to see blood. It was startling to see Hulk Hogan being the guy who's who's bleeding. And what was amazing is it Bischoff hits him with a chair and Hogan sells it like he's been shot by a cannon. <laughs> so from what I'm seeing, if I'm if I'm a fan watching this product, Eric Bischoff is not only the creative force running this show, he's the biggest badass who took down Sid without lifting a finger and then just laid out the biggest star in the industry. So maybe maybe Bischoff should be the guy getting the, the spring stampede title shot. <laughs> maybe him and him and Jarrett. Him and Jarrett. Which I wouldn't be surprised if they actually did that match in TNA at some point. <laughs> Outside, Ric Flair arrives an hour late for work. Elsewhere backstage, a bleeding Hogan is on a rampage looking for Bischoff and Kidman. He is throwing Everything in his path. He is just creating a, a mess backstage for some poor PA that has to clean up after him. The best match of 2017 is Hulk Hogan versus inanimate objects in the hallway during this show. It's like that scene in Rogue One where Darth Vader is just wiping out an entire like hallway of, of soldiers. Yeah. Uh, that was that was Hogan against inanimate objects. Well, he kept just saying, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, son of a bitch. But it was completely ineffective, so it was actually more like Kylo Ren in Force Awakens when he destroys that console with his lightsaber. Even even better. Uh, Elsewhere, Flair watches the opening segment on a monitor. His music then plays, and he comes down to the ring. Flair, who has been a heel for this entire year, is now uh, now just a babyface. Flair says that Russo has a problem with him, so he should come out and face him. Does Russo come out? No. Instead, it is Scott Steiner that comes out to the Steinerized theme song for some unexplainable reason. He was not using this music at the time period, so I don't know why they were clowning him with his old his old tag team theme. I fully had that written down as, why the hell is Scott Steiner? I thought maybe something had happened why Steiner's coming out to his old peppy babyface music. Yeah, I thought maybe this was a network fuck-up, but I look back and, nope, this is what he used at the time on the original broadcast. Uh, the motivation here is that Scott was almost fired a few weeks ago for shooting on Rick on TV. So, of course, we're going to put these two in a promo segment together. Scott says Flair is a boring old bastard. He said the last time he did an interview, Flair and his old bastard friends tried to get him fired. And he says that if you look at WWF, all of their champions came from WCW. Oh, no, no. He says – he points out all their champions but one guy. That one guy, by the way, is The Rock, probably the biggest (laughs) movie star on the planet right now. 
So at least it's factually accurate. Uh, although I think at the time, like, Crash Holly and uh, Edge and Christian were champions. So may- who knows uh, if this was factually accurate. Uh, Scott blames Flair for driving all of them out and that the only reason he's a 14-time champion is because his old bastard friends drove everybody out. Once again, Raw begins in 20 minutes, guys. Steiner then lowers himself to Flair's low-class level and does a Flair impression while wearing fake teeth. While Flair is distracted by whatever the fuck Steiner's attempting here, Shane Douglas then comes out from the crowd and attacks Flair. One shoot feud is not enough. Shane Douglas makes an unannounced return and attacks Ric Flair. The announcers tell us repeatedly that he does not work here. Steiner continues to taunt Flair, but we cut backstage before he can finish his promo to show Kevin Nash arriving on crutches. Boy, once again, this was maybe 30 minutes. I I think there was five hours of content in this two-hour show. They they told months' worth of storylines in one episode. My favorite thing is you have Steiner out there with fake teeth, and my hope is that Scott Steiner like went to a, a costume store or a prop shop, and that should have been its own pre-tape of Scott Steiner trying on different types of fake teeth because that would have been more entertaining. And the best part is Shane Douglas jumps Ric Flair in the middle of this, and Steiner still keeps cutting his promo as if he has exactly. no idea what's going on in the ring. He's like, I'm getting all my shit in. In the crowd, Bret Hart is just shown bored as fuck watching the show from the cheap seats. They they couldn't get this guy a, a booth or a front row seat. He just in the he was in like the upper deck. You can see his soul escaping his body uh, during this this little just awful backstage. He looks like the um the the girl from the ring. Like he's just pale <laughs> and expressionless. Like I was worried he was going to crawl through my TV and explain to me um, why my views on wrestling are wrong. Bret Hart was the original Miz Girl watching this show. <laughs> Tony then hits the nail on the head, exclaiming, Every segment has been a train wreck. I wrote that down, too. We have had a train wreck every segment is the only truthful thing Tony Schiavone has ever said on TV. We then go backstage to Mean Gene talking to Shane Douglas, who does not work here but is being given an interview segment. Gene says that Shane asked for his release and he got it, so he shouldn't be here. Douglas says that he'll do what he wants and he's here to take out Flair for making a mockery of the sport. Quite the leap of faith to, uh, you know, do you think he bought a ticket to this Nitro? How, where do you, how do you think he got into the building? So I can believe a lot of things, but I don't buy that anybody paid money to go to this Nitro. This had to have been papered. <laughs> Um, like crazy, but Shane Douglas coming out here. So what's weird is in the opening segment, they, they, they dropped the whole Shane Douglas left with the, the radicals. And then you have the shocking Shane Douglas return. And that should have been it. Now, one segment later, he's cutting a backstage promo. So he went from Shane's not here to now Shane Douglas is overexposed. Our next tournament match starts, and it is Sting versus Sid. Uh, we should point out both these guys got their full intros, so I'm, I'm assuming one of the old-timers yelled at Vince Russo backstage and said, don't pull that shit on me. Um, these two start with trading some offense. There's a Stinger splash, and then, as is the norm for the night, they just brawl. They punch, they kick, they walk around the ring, they say hi to the guardrail. Uh, Sid can't decide if he's supposed to be a babyface or a heel. He was a babyface in the opening segment. He was a heel last week. He'll play to the crowd, then yell at them to shut up. None of it makes sense. The wall then comes out, carrying a table. The ref takes a bump, and Sid powerbombs Sting. The wall then comes in and attacks Sid with a chair. Wall then takes Sid outside and chokeslams Sid through the table. 
The ref comes to and counts sit out. So Sting wins via uh, via count out. We we have our two monster babyface challengers, uh, Sting winning via uh, count out and uh, DDP winning by uh, sexual assault in the opening match. Those are our two big stars here. But the other thing that's crazy is that just last week the Wall and Sid were like allies, but here we are. We're just you know we're throwing it all against the wall, uh, literally. So what's amazing is they bring the announcers bring up that uh, Russo said it's time for the new blood. So the guys that are competing for the title are Paige, Luger, Sting, Sid, Jarrett, and Kurt Hennig. So not a single true new blood guy outside of, of Jarrett, who's already their top heel, is even getting an opportunity on the show. So the message is inconsistent. Uh, and then you have the wall come out there, and after Bischoff had laid out Hogan before with it with a great chair shot, the wall throws the weakest chair shot I think I've ever seen on television, and Sid sells it like he's dead. Well, what was great was the wall brought the chair up, and as Sid was like mid power bomb to Sting, and I think he just looked at me as like, I have no idea where to hit him with this chair. <laughs> yes, his back is covered by Sting's legs. He just he just waited patiently for his turn. I think like maybe he was supposed to hit Sid before the power bomb even happened. No, that it was a um, it was a series of uncomfortable moments during this during this particular segment and. It doesn't really matter because all the announcers – I mean at one point they said what is going to happen in the backstage area. So the only thing you as a fan need to care about is what's going on in pre-tapes and in the hallways backstage because none of this shit in the ring really matters. This is Vince, Vince Russo's dream. Well, you also bring up the fact that they're not really highlighting the new blood and what what kind of blew my mind was that there was no use of Booker T on this entire show and he was easily – the. Him and Vampiro were the two most over guys in the mid-card, and neither of like, – Vampiro gets something to do later on, but no use of Booker T, especially when he was hands down the best-dressed guy in that opening segment. He looked like the world's best-dressed limo driver. <laughs> <laughs> At the announcer's table, Scott and Tony recap all the chaos of the evening. Just as Tony says he doesn't know what's going to happen next because he doesn't have a format – Flair gets in the ring and challenges Shane Douglas for a match tonight. Yes, this bitter grudge match, this shoot feud is going to get paid off with 20 minutes build. <laughs> so it looks like they did. A, they took a month-long um, uh, uh, sheet. You know, when you, when you used to, we used to do the grids to, to book out to a pay-per-view, and you'd yeah. have four weeks of TV, and they accidentally must have, like, taped it into the script here and did all four weeks in one show. Well, that's been the weird thing about the timing of this is that the day after Uncensored, they decide they're going to bring back Russo and Bischoff. And instead of saying, well, we're going to bring you back on the episode after Spring Stampede, we're going to bring you back on the go-home show for Spring Stampede. So here we are rushing through a month's worth of storylines to a cold pay-per-view that's all matches for vacant titles. After the break, Hogan asks Shane Helms and Shannon Moore where Bischoff is and throws them into a garage door. So we're putting you over, New Blood. He's a hell of a babyface. Sure, sure is. I can see why uh, you'd pay money to come see this guy and nobody else. We then get our tamest segment of the night, uh, a recap of the Ready to Rumble premiere from the previous weekend. All the big stars were there. Vampiro, Michael Buffer, Sting, even Sable was at the premiere. Uh, did, you, did you see her in this video? I, I did. I, 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 took a, I did a double take there. 
because um, I, I, I tried to remember where she was at in, in 2000, and it's strange that she would show up to the Ready to Rumble premiere, but WCW couldn't throw enough money to really get her on uh, on Nitro. Yeah, she was trying to make the jump because there was a lawsuit between her and WWF and, and all this stuff, but I would like to think that she went to the Ready to Rumble premiere and just changed her fucking mind after seeing the movie. <laughs> that's that's my hope. What I, what I loved about this was in the opening segment – uh, Bischoff is pointing out when he's calling out the the old timers like uh, like Page and Sting that they'd rather be at movie premieres than showing up to work. And then you have this video package where every WCW star, including Jeff Jarrett, is at a movie premiere, and this is being celebrated. So there's not even a consistent messaging in terms of attending Hollywood events. Yeah, and you would think that your guys attending a movie premiere is actually a good thing that you should celebrate. Uh, there apparently was a wrestling ring, and Eric Bischoff broke a guitar over Jeff Jarrett's head. Uh, now, coming out of this uh, video, Tony informs us that David Arquette will be on this week's Thunder. Man, the the, the hits just keep on coming. Uh, do you want to come back next week, Robert? David Arquette <laughs> is a full-time member of this roster for the next month. Um, can, I would come back, and we can watch that Thunder. I feel like Thunder is, is is the hidden gem. What I what I loved was I wrote Arquette's coming to Thunder. This is going to go well. I mean, you can't even imagine if you were watching this Nitro thinking, "God, this is as bad as it gets," having no idea that there's like this atomic bomb that was hidden in that in this little segment here of yeah. Arquette just waiting to go off. We then go back to the arena, and it is time for Jeff Jarrett versus Kurt Henning, uh, or more accurately, it is now time for the announcers to continue talking about Ready to Rumble as Jeff Jarrett makes his entrance. Scott Hudson tries his best to put over the box officer for Ready to Rumble. I wrote this down. That's why I'm laughing. Hudson it- says, five and a half million dollars, not bad. That's actually terrible, Scott. Ready to Rumble opened at number six. It would only make $12 million. It was an unqualified flop, and I saw it opening weekend. So I think that the fact that Scott Hudson thinks that $5.5 million is a lot of money for a movie is probably why WCW went out of business. Yeah, I think by WCW math, we made this movie for $24 million. We made five. Seems like a pretty good return on investment. I think the best thing about this film is... John Cena's in Ready to Rumble. Uh, he's mm-hmm. randomly in the background, and if one person happened to have seen this guy in the background and thought, hey, that might be somebody worth talking to, uh, this show would still be continuing and Keep It 2017 uh, with Nitro, the hottest show on television. Yeah, there's a scene that they shot like in the UPW gym, and there he is just lifting some weights. Mr. Prototype himself back there. So uh, the match starts, and uh, I shouldn't say match. I should say brawl because – that's all that happens on this show. Uh, Henning and Jarrett, they brawl down the aisle. They brawl around the ring. They punch by the announcer's table. They get in the they get in the ring. They punch each other. And then a ripoff of the Mr. Perfect theme song plays. Not a ripoff of Kurt Henning's theme, but a ripoff of the Mr. Perfect theme. And out comes Sean Stasiak. <laughs> to crickets, of course, because it's Sean Stasiak. So there's so much strange, strange stuff that just happens in these in these couple of minutes. You have Mr. Perfect, or I'm sorry, you have Kurt Hennig uh, and Jeff Jarrett brawling in the aisle, and this is for the number one contender's slot. Um, so it's a big deal, and the announcers interrupt to say we have we, we have breaking news that Hulk Hogan has been notified that Eric Bischoff is in a skybox. <laughs> 
So don't care about this match. Let's worry about what's going on in the back. Uh, and then and then you have uh, Sean Stasiak come out, and as if he doesn't get uh, a, a flat reaction to begin with, Scott Hudson immediately buries him ten feet underground by saying, "That's meat." From the WWF. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. So Sean Stasiak has never performed under the name Sean Stasiak. He's only been seen as meat in the WWF. It's kind of mind blowing that they gave this guy this massive push right out the gate. But Booker T's not even on the show tonight. Uh, he comes down and Scott Hudson says, "We know what happened in New York, Robert. What happened in New York?" New in New York, um, Vince McMahon and company realized that cutting bait on Sean Stasiak was the single smartest decision that they could make <laughs> and say and then took that money they saved on Sean Stasiak and launched the XFL. <laughs> well, because that so what happened at the time was that Sean Stasiak was discovered that he was secretly taping backstage in the locker room. He said that uh he was just making this is for himself, but he might have been making a documentary, who knows? And Jim Ross just chewed this guy out in front of the locker room and fired him on the spot. Uh, funny enough that uh, 17 years later, this is now uh, an entire second revenue source for half the roster with like up, up, down, down and uh, promoted Instagram posts. So Sean Stasiak was the guy behind GTV. He was and ahead then, of his time, yeah. Yeah. He <laughs> took the hottest angle in the business and brought it to WCW where he only had to do one move to Kurt Hennig and botched it. Uh, it, not only did I, he just had to do one move, he only had to do one thing at all, which was spit his gum out and, like, swat it away like Mr. Perfect does. But instead he, like, hit it down with his hand and it, like, hit the apron <laughs> by mistake instead of, like, flying off. Uh, so, yeah, he comes in the ring. He fucks up a move. I don't even know what this move – It maybe it was supposed to be, like, a Samoan drop. I have no – he fucked it up so badly. This is this week's gift request. Someone please get me – Whatever this is, and let me know whatever name of whatever move you think he was attempting. Uh, he lays out Henning, and then Jarrett hits the stroke and gets the win. So Jarrett will be continuing on to uh, Spring Stampede, and uh, Sean Stasiak made a debut you will not remember in five minutes. So it looked like um, – if you've ever seen someone try to pick up a toddler throwing a temper, a temper tantrum, yeah. that was what <laughs> this looked like. And the strange thing, again, trying to, I'm trying to use the L word logic in what I've seen – Kurt Hennig has been a loyal soldier to, to Vince Russo, so Vince Russo immediately fucks him over. Yep, yep. Makes sense. Um, on the plus side, and, and it, what, what you're going to come to next is probably my favorite thing that I've seen in professional wrestling in in years. Uh, you have Hulk Hogan screaming at strangers in a skybox. Hulk Hogan, who is covered in his own blood, <laughs> is grabbing fans in a private skybox. This guy... Did he just not care about possibly being sued, or was this just where the industry was that we're going to bleed on fans and, uh, you know, come what may? I like that it, Hogan seemed like the fans were hiding Bischoff like he's Anne Frank, and they're like, where is he? <laughs> but this impromptu spur-of-the-moment uh, thing kind of got room when he leaves the skybox, and you see the lighting kit and the entire crew of people filming this. <laughs> Like I'm begging, you didn't have to. You didn't have to show it. And Hogan's acting here of where's Bischoff is. It, so one of my favorite films of all time is is Mallrats. 
Yeah. And there's a scene where T.S. is is yelling, trying to find his girlfriend, Brandy. And he he's the worst actor ever. And he's trying to, where's Brandy? Where's Brandy? And it, it was recreated here at Hulk Hogan asking, where's Bischoff? For these fans <laughs> who look te- – there's a small child who's traumatized <laughs> looking at his hero covered in blood screaming at people like as a homeless man on the street. Well, you mentioned this. I, I can't help but think like if they had gone a completely different route uh, – with with the uh, with the Nazi hunter thing you brought up yes. there, if they just recreated like the opening of Inglorious Bastards and Hogan just sits down very calmly with with with, with the father of this family enjoying a skybox and just talks to them for twenty minutes and he's like Eric Bischoff's on the floorboards, isn't he? <laughs> and then they <laughs> and they just they bring in the Millionaires Club and they just shoot up the floor of this skybox. <laughs> I mean that's that would he got him he got him there with the with the glass of milk and then he can take his vi- he can take his vitamins with the milk. I think we we solved it. That would have. That would have saved this company. Even in all this chaos, uh, Kevin Nash is just is shown backstage not giving a fuck. Nothing can make this man's heart heartbeat raise ever. And uh, he tells whoever he's talking to on the phone, get here if you can. So we're meant to believe that this mystery man flew all the way to Denver but might just stay back at the hotel and not come to the show. I love Kevin Nash's flip phone more than more than I care to admit. It's and even in 2000 that was an outdated phone. Well, I think any phone that Kevin Nash is on is a flip phone based on the way that he discusses <laughs> that, that he's always so nonchalant. <laughs> the flippant phone. <laughs> uh, mean Gene interviews Sting who promises to come after Russo's Golden Boy because he's loyal to WCW. It is now time, years in the making and 20 minutes build, Ric Flair in street clothes makes his way out for his street fight with Shane Douglas. Shane also, Douglas – sorry, mm-hmm. just want to point out here, Flair, the second guy, completely no-sells his pyro. Yep, yep. He, I guess he's, he's been grandfathered in when it comes to the, the no-pyro rule. Shane Douglas, who does not work here, gets a full entrance with lighting and music. Following in tonight's booking theme, these two just brawl and trade punches uh, – they just on, – on, on commentary, Scott Hudson says, We heard Shane attack Rick in other organizations and hotlines and in mainstream news organizations. Yeah, who can forget Shane Douglas's appearances on 60 Minutes running down Ric Flair? This is obviously just a prelude to a distraction. Russo comes down with a baseball bat and he hits Flair with it, resulting in a DQ. What I think was that there's a lot of amazing things here. Shane Douglas, the announcers are pointing out that he thinks Ric Flair held back young talent to get himself over, which makes me think that Shane Douglas was meaning to feud with Hulk Hogan all these years and just mixed the two up in his mind and didn't have the uh, – the. He, he's kind of like President Trump. He's not going to admit he made a mistake, and he's just going with it. He also is dressed like a strip club promoter. Yes, he is. And I think at one point he so he had this ugly fucking gold shirt that looks that looks more like the curtain at a strip club. And Flair rips it off because that was always one of his spots. He'd rip a guy's shirt off and then ch- like you know uh, chop the bare chest. But this guy has a fucking black T-shirt on underneath. <laughs> He was he was dressed he was dressed to go. What I what I think was fantastic um, earlier in the night, Eric Bischoff takes out Hulk Hogan with a chair. In this segment, Vince Russo takes out Ric Flair with a baseball bat. So the two creative writers are the most destructive force in WCW history. Not only that, but they are cool as fuck when Russo gets on top of Flair and does the nerdiest fucking suck it chop I've ever goddamn seen. That was that was a thing of, of absolute beauty. Oh, and then And then he steal- kept doing it to fans. Like he was so proud of himself. 
But he steals Ric Flair's watch, and this is what the announcers are upset about. He just beat the man with a baseball bat, but Flair's going to let that go. But, up, oh, you took his watch. Now it's personal. After the break, Nash comes out and recaps the show as only Big Sexy can up to this point. Nash asks what happened to the sweet little wrestling show they were doing last week, and what happened to the dog? Honestly, I wish the dog was back. We, we gave Al Green a lot of shit for this gimmick over the last couple of weeks, but I, I would take the dog any day over what we've seen on this show up to this point. Uh, Nash says he just got off the phone with Scott Hall, and he's ready to come back to work. He's also sober. Scott he says Hall is he, sober. sober. He is sober. Uh, apparently, it only took three weeks to do that. What I was going to point out, there, there, were, there were three things that were pretty fantastic in the, in the opening part here. First... Scott Hudson's pointing out that Kevin Nash was part of one of the most uh, destructive and divisive groups in wrestling history, the Click, as, <laughs> as if he forgot that the NWO existed. Um, Nash keeps calling. He says, we got two jackoffs in the back, which makes me think, how are there only two jackoffs in the back at WCW? And then asks what happened to the sweet little wrestling show when the answer uh, Kev, is you guys came in with your creative control clauses, took all the money, decided you didn't want to work, and killed the company, and then are acting confused as to what happened. Yeah, Kevin Nash has such he, – he has an amazing, almost sociopathic ability to instantly just twist every situation into making himself look good. It, it, is, it is a legitimate talent, and if this guy had not become a wrestler, I think he could have been a consultant or some sort – something in the creative field. I – it's, it's a talent. It's a, it's a beauty what this man can do. Uh, Kev then shoots on Eric and Vince, uh, never once putting over WCW TV. <laughs> he, puts, he puts down uh, Eric for working with Vern Gagne. He says that uh, he protected Vince Russo from Ch Shawn Michaels. Never once mentions anything relating to anything on WCW television. Uh, Nash is rattling on when ECW champion Mike Awesome runs in from behind and attacks him. This was a massive swerve. Oh, Mike Awesome gosh. was the ECW champion at the time and accepted a million-dollar contract to come do this. On, on a different show in a different environment, this would have meant a lot. This honestly is probably how you should have ended the show. This maybe could have been how you went off the air. Oh, my goodness, the ECW champion Mike Awesome is here. What does this mean? Uh, instead, this guy who's known for his towering size in ECW is instead uh, here being dwarfed by Kevin Nash on night one. Everything about the way they executed this Mike Awesome debut was was asinine. Um, it's just like you said. The one thing that made Mike Awesome special in ECW was he was this big, massive, tall man. And you put him in, in WCW against a guy who's bigger than him. You have Mike Awesome come out in wearing a fanny pack and his jeans tucked into his boots looking like the biggest geek ever with his with his feathered hair. And then you let this guy cut a promo? Yeah. Not his biggest strength either. I would probably say he should have just yelled at the audience uh, or maybe maybe done a, a Mean Gene interview backstage. But he had one sentence to say, and he, he fumbled. When I heard Bischoff and Russo were back in the saddle here at WCW, I knew this was just too sweet of an opportunity to pass up. Now, it should also be pointed out, how, how was this possible? How was it possible that the ECW champion is allowed to be on WCW television? He has an ECW contract. He has an ECW belt. Um, Heyman threatened to sue, and the money was just too good. And what they ended up doing was they struck a deal. And the deal was that he could do this as long as Mike Awesome would work, the sh uh, would work a title match that weekend and lose the belt... 
and that they would have to promote this match on WCW television. Uh, did you catch the way they plugged this match on WCW television? Um, I, I feel like I did because I, I fully remember this all being done, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure how WCW plugged it. Uh, during the beatdown, Scott Hudson said, doesn't he have a title match this weekend? And that was it. That's all the dedication they, they gave to this. Of course, that match would end up being a squash match to Taz. WWF lent Taz to, uh, to ECW. So you had a WWF guy beating a WCW guy for the ECW title in a D- ECW ring. And then the next week, uh, Triple H would then job out uh, Taz uh, while he was the ECW champion. So a lot of good came from, uh, from this million-dollar contract offer that uh, Mike Awesome jumped at. But it, it is one of the most memorable things in, in wrestling history. And in 2017, where guys uh, were, were going from company to company is somewhat more fluid. I mean, this was one of the most memorable and, and shocking things up until that point. Now, obviously, a year later, when, when WCW goes under, it all becomes moot. But at, at this point in time, when, when you had this, this was one of the craziest and most amazing things ever. So WCW accidentally creates the hottest backstage angle and on tv all they do is talk about all the other backstage crap that no one cares about right yeah they have like fake backstage shit going on that no one cares about and this would have been i mean i'll say it again this probably would have been the best thing to go off the show with like you could have actually established mike awesome as this massive top star if you would just finish things off with him beating down nash or whoever and going off the show hot with him uh, and maybe even ask like, oh, what what does this mean for you know uh, Spring Stampede this Sunday? And by the way, what it meant for Spring Stampede this Sunday was uh, he would lose to Scott Steiner in the opening round of the U.S. title tournament. I, I did look it up to see what wound up happening. So uh, money well spent. Outside, Hogan is in his limo talking to someone, <laughs> and in the heat of the moment, he says that he is going to eat Bischoff's, eat Bischoff's ass. ass. <laughs> yep, as the, the one note I had written that. I heard it, and I actually had to go back and listen again to make sure that Hogan Same. genuinely said that. Now, thank God that sex tape never came out. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess eating someone's ass meant something different in the year 2000, but still, just the phrase, I'm going to eat his ass, I don't see when that would ever have uh, come across as threatening. No, in 2000, it meant the same thing because if memory serves me, uh, the Bloodhound Gang had a song where, where the chorus was singing about wanting to eat someone's ass. Uh, so this might be the first time ever the Bloodhound Gang has come up on anything ever, and I don't know why I thought of that now in 2017. <laughs> uh, just then, the infamous White Hummer shows up and slams repeatedly into uh, Hogan's limo. Uh, the White Hummer was a a lengthy storyline from the year earlier where someone was being attacked by someone in a, in a White Hummer. I think uh, like Savage was taken out and Nash was taken out and even Sting. Like Everyone was getting taken out by this mystery person in the White Hummer. Uh, who is it? Bischoff gets out of the car. Him and Billy Kidman get out of the car. Scott Hudson says, it was Eric all along. It makes total sense. Uh, it didn't make total sense, I can say, as someone who was watching the programming at the time. This was uh, this was terrible. Scott Hudson even points out that the white Hummer and the use of it and the mystery behind it was being played for a joke for a long time. But now it really matters. Exactly. What a great thing to say. Hey, guys, this feud you don't care about anymore at all is important again. But we at least acknowledge that uh, we did a shitty job booking it at one point. Backstage, uh, Hogan is now being loaded into an ambulance and Eric Bischoff taunts him while Kidman spray paints NB on his chest. 
uh, and this would this is going to become a, a motif for this group. This was the, these are the worst paramedics of all time. They just stand back while Hogan's strapped into the stretcher and just let Kidman spray paint him. Even under wrestling logic, wrestlers can attack wrestlers. They can't touch real people. So the paramedics don't even put up a fight. They're just no, they're like, they're not even like back off or anything like that. They're just, they're just like, nope, we're gonna keep doing our job. <laughs> no, they're probably like, no, H- Hogan's a piece of shit. We watched this show. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, back out in the arena, DDP makes his entrance, and he gets full pyro. So we're we're dropping that that opening gimmick, guys. It's gone. We tried it for one match, it, it didn't work. Sting makes his way out, and he is followed by Jeff Jarrett, who gets on commentary. Sting and DDP lock up, and uh, DDP does his uh, shoulder thrusts. Uh, they actually have somewhat of a match. These two guys can work, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in uh, the last thirty minutes they just threw something together backstage. DDP goes for a diamond cutter, but Sting throws him out to the outside. Uh, on commentary, Jeff says that the guys backstage are all pinching themselves because the dream is over and the nightmare is here. Another shoot on uh, on commentary there. What I loved was Tony Schiavone, God bless him, points out that they've been cleared by TNT to go an extra half hour. Oh, thank so, God. <laughs> so I blame TNT for a lot. I mean, I wanted to watch. I'm guessing Thunder in Paradise was coming up next, uh, and it got preempted a little bit. So that sucks. And then they also told you to drop the clicker. So once again, reminding you, oh, crap, I should be watching Raw. You have an option, guys. Uh, why, why would you – why would – Anyone drop the clip? It's Diamond Dallas Page versus Sting. That's the one segment that obviously you're going to want to watch that as opposed to whatever is going on, on on that other show. Sting goes for the Scorpion Deathlock, but DDP grabs the ropes. Jared then leaves the announcer's booth to trash talk Kimberly. This causes DDP to go to the outside and brawl with Jeff. With the referee's attention on the outside, Vampiro comes in and lays out Sting with a nail in the coffin. These two had been uh, just tag team partners two weeks ago. Yes, the hottest rising star in the company has turned heel. Do the fans boo? Do they throw trash? No. They just largely ignore this because they've already had so many fucking angles thrown at them. Who cares that some other dude is being inconsistent now? DDP gets in the ring. He hits Sting with a diamond cutter, gets the pin, and we have DDP versus Jeff Jarrett for the world title at Spring Stampede. Uh, after the match, Kimberly gets in the ring to celebrate with her husband. Jarrett, though, sneaks up from behind, tries to hit DDP with the guitar, but he ducks, and Kimberly is hit instead. Rather than sell his injury, we then instantly cut to brick. So Diamond Dallas Page, over the course of this show, low blows Lex Luger, takes advantage of a, a sexual assault distraction, picks up a win after his opponent is, is laid out by Vampiro, and then ducks out of the way of a guitar shot so his wife can get hit in the head. And he's your top babyface. Uh, you know, live by the the distraction sexual assault, die by the distraction sexual assault, I guess. It's just what goes around comes around. <laughs> God bless Kimberly. She covers up well before that guitar is even swung. Um, so she clearly she's, she's telepathic and she could see what was about to happen. We go backstage where Russo and Bischoff tell Jarrett that the crowd is calling for him, so he needs to go back out to the ring. They were celebrating the fact that Jeff Jarrett just uh, assaulted a woman, by the way. So Jeff Jarrett then makes his way out with his fourth fucking entrance of the show. That is one thing that has not changed week to week. Jeff Jarrett is all over the place. Even better, this is an impromptu uh, promo, and his pyro is set up in the ring. (laughs) Jarrett reminds us that it's only six days until he finally becomes the world champion. Jarrett tells DDP to bring his wife because then a real man can show her some more wood. This penis joke prompts DDP to run down and the two men brawl. 
Scott Steiner then runs down, then Lex Luger, then Sting, then Vampiro, then Buff Bagwell, then Booker, then The Wall, then Sean Stasiak, and before you know it, the entire new blood is out here, outnumbering the Millionaires Club. Fans are loudly chanting for Goldberg, who will not be showing up. On stage, Russo and Bischoff celebrate the carnage and shake hands. Suddenly, though, Bret Hart walks out and stares at the two of them. What a confusing way to end an already confusing episode. This was overkill, and of everything, of all the crazy over-the-top angles you've shot, this is what you go off with, is Bret Hart looking at Russo and Bischoff, which would have no follow-up, and we already teased earlier in the show that Bret Hart was here, so it wasn't even like a, a, a surprise that the hitman walked out. So... There's a lot to unpack in what was a very short window of time. Uh, DDP, who is supposed to be in the back caring for his wife, who may have a broken neck and a concussion, abandons her to go beat up Jeff Jarrett because Jarrett was talking crap about uh, Well, about it, was, it was a very good dick joke that he had, so you it can was, understand. The irony being – and again, like I said, I watched Raw. They made a uh, joke about Bubba Ray getting wood going after uh, Trish Stratus on the same night. And Jim Ross delivered it, and it was a it was a much better joke. Do, do you think that uh, Russo was maybe watching Raw backstage, and he heard that line? And he goes, "Fuck, that's really good." Can Can you call up TNT and see if they'll give us extra time to add a segment so we can get that line in on our show too? Probably. But what I love was they just pointed out that the show could go until uh, can go an extra half hour, and then it ends on an abrupt thing being cut off when clearly Bret Hart came out there for a reason. Like, can you imagine if you were just live in the arena and Bret Hart just kind of wanders out and then just immediately turns face and wanders back? Well, that's the thing. WCW would do things like this where they would actually end hard on cliffhangers, which is something I give uh, WWF shit for sometimes. I and mean, even when I was there, I don't know if you ran into this. When I was there, there were times where we would want to end on a cliffhanger, but it just wasn't possible because the way that Vince would format the show was, nope, we've got to show the, the closing angle and the announcers have to recap what we just saw and we can't end on a question. We have to leave with resolution. And that that's something that they did to the extreme here in that we get maybe five seconds of a close-up on, on Brett, and you're right. I can't imagine what they did after this. What did they They went off the air and Brett just shrugged his shoulders and walked backstage. How did this scene end for the live crowd? I can't imagine, and I also can't imagine if you're watching this at home, and you're and let's say you, you've somehow soldiered through all this live in 2000, and you're like, you know what? I'm still standing behind Sting and, and, and Paige and the old guys. These are all guys that were there for the entire NWO invasion and somehow thought a, a six-on-two uh, assault was going, to, was going to work if it turned into a six-on-three assault. It's almost like they completely forgot for the last few years they kept getting jumped week after week. So your baby faces aren't getting any smarter. And you have the, the rings swarm with all these guys, and it should have ended on them getting beat up. But then it's Bret Hart shows up, and I guess that the tease is whose side is he on? But who the hell cares? Yeah, and they didn't even have enough time, again, to say, whose side is he on? He just walked out and stared, and we cut to black. Uh, so, yeah, this show uh, this show was awful. And I can't believe that Nate and I had spent the last couple of weeks waiting for this return. Uh, I will take Kevin Sullivan any day. The show was shorter. It was dumb. But you could make fun of the dog, whereas this, I mean— you told you took five pages of notes. I took yep. a, a similar amount. Not only did so many things happen in terms of interferences, they told the entire month story. They blew off the entire Shane Douglas Ric Flair feud in one night. 
you had physicality with you introduced Kidman going after Hogan and then had physicality and essentially a whole match in one night. You you uh, had Bischoff turn on Hogan and not only turn on Hogan, then reveal later on that he's the guy behind the Hummer all in one night. You crown your number one contenders for your your title as well as stripping away all the other uh, guys and you give zero exposure to any of the young stars that they're promoting and saying these are the guys that you that you care about. Um, the most over people on this show, in my opinion, were Benoit, Guerrero, Malenko, and Saturn because <laughs> they got mentioned in the opening segment and then later Scott Hudson points out they left on like Black Monday and that those were the guys that WCW was putting all their faith in. And you yep. just said that on television. That the guys that we were going to build the future on just left the company, so now we're left with the also brands and and the the scrap heap and meat. Yeah, WCW finally booked these guys strong. All it took was them going to a different company <laughs> for them to book them well. Uh, I I got to say every every episode we do our silver linings. Where we have to pick one unqualified positive. Um, I I I'm having I'm having a very hard time finding a single positive thing about this episode to say. Ooh, um, David Arquette wasn't on it, but he was. He, oh, was, no, in no, the, he was in the oh, Ready to Rumble video here's, package. Here's, here's what I'm, here, you know what? Here's my unqualified success. Here's here's what I'm going to say, and this is this is a good silver lining, and this is a big one and an important one. If you watch this show. And this was Russo being his most Russo, all backstage, not giving a crap about matches, wacky angles. Something happened second by second by second. The guys who really shined here in spite of all of this were Sting, Hulk Hogan, and Ric Flair because they all show that they can still act like grown-ups. They can deliver amazing promos and are enduring talents who deserved the spots that they were given in WCW, which is insane to think about when you look back and say WCW held down all the young guys and they just promoted the old guys and it was nonsense. But you know what? The old guys were the only ones that came across as genuine stars. And if you looked over on Raw that that, that same week, the, the promo segments were giving it a chance to breathe. Stuff was logical. You had young guys in great matches, but talent that could cut promos or get over were given that time. Ric Flair's promo where he gets all fired up against Vince Russo, and even though he was going on tangents and sucking up to the Broncos, he came across as a real major star and a babyface. Hogan facing off against Kidman, Hogan came across as a babyface. Sting cut that little promo in the back with, with Gene Okerlund, and he came across as a true, genuine babyface. So I think the silver lining, the silver-haired lining, is that the biggest <laughs> stars in this show were Hogan, Flair, and Sting, all guys who once WCW was dead and gone, got shots in the WWE again and showed that, hey, they're still really, really great. Yeah, these were guys that even when the, the, the sky is falling around them – I, I won't put so much on Hogan, but you know Flair was entertaining, and I thought Sting again backstage he cut her, his promo backstage with Mean Gene might have been the best promo on the entire show in a show that was full of talking. So uh, in honor of Nate not being able to be here with us today, I'm gonna have to say maybe Sting is my <laughs> is my silver lining with the second uh, runner up being Booker T's suit in the opening segment. Booker T's suit in the opening segment and and when he made the return in the last segment with it, I think were uh, were amazing. Um, I loved Candido in the very beginning where he just was completely blank-faced as they were cutting through, just staring directly into the mm -hmm. camera, letting you know subliminally – 
turn on, turn this off now. Like he was the real he was the real hero there. Uh, and I think that my the other guy, you know, what? I think the guy that was the best built on this show and the and the most over and the most beloved and the guy who has all momentum going forward, um, who did an amazing job tonight was Goldberg. Because yes. this crowd loved him from beginning he played to end. this crowd perfectly by not being in front of them. <laughs> I, and it's a philosophy that the WWE used in 2017 of having Goldberg, <laughs> just not using him. So clearly it's uh, it's Sting and Goldberg. You are fortunate. You get to leave after this episode. But I am continuing down this path. Uh, Nate got uh, a, a much-needed break from having to watch this. I, I really envy him. If I had been thinking properly, I should have just had you on here by yourself reading your five pages of notes <laughs> while, while both of us took the show off. But our road continues. Uh, just curious, do you have any advice for us having sat through one of these uh, one of these trials? Um, aside from drinking heavily, um, I, w- I would say you you try to look at it and you try to see where the where the where the real logic gaps are. Um, you know, looking at it from from the from a creative perspective, if you were sitting in the in the writers' room there, uh, if you mm-hmm. were sitting there when they were pitching these ideas, seeing. And you know it just as well as I do. You've sat in a room. You've made a clear pitch to Vince, and he accepts it. And between that pitch to it making it on TV, it goes off the rails. And try to see if you can figure out what the original pitch was and what ultimately got put on television and where it went off the rails. So I think just that mental exercise of of reminding yourself um, that this isn't real, this isn't real, there was a good idea that just got screwed up somewhere, uh, that might help. Maybe, but watching the show, I think that every segment was exactly what Vince Russo wrote, uh, just poorly executed because he doesn't know how to execute anything. (laughs) But but, but Robert, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, We mentioned everything off the top. Uh, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this probably already follows – WWE creative-ish, uh, but but where else can people also uh, uh, find you if they want to keep you in their life? Uh, so uh, follow me on Twitter at wwcreative underscore ish. Um, you can listen to me on the uh, the Writers Room podcast on the uh, on the MLW network. Uh, so you can follow them at MLW, and they have all the links, and I'll retweet that there. Uh, if you're if you're feeling uh, especially generous and you want to be the best dressed wrestling fan in the world, you can go to prowrestlingtees.com <laughs> slash creative underscore ish. I uh, have a couple shirts up there. And if you're ever in the South Florida area, uh, I am a proud front office executive with the Florida Panthers Hockey Club, uh, home of the uh, – episode of raw from april of 2000 uh so you know come on out to a game uh you can always tweet me and what i always tell people and listeners and i'll extend that to uh all the fine folks here and keep it 2000 if you're coming to a game and you send me a tweet and you tell me where you're going to be not only am i going to stop by and say hello i'm going to buy you a beer unless you're 21 in which case i'm just going to sneak it to you why did you not tell me about this offer when I was actually in Florida when we were at Wally Mania together? I, may, I would have extended my trip a day, gone to a hockey game for a free beer. Because I, I, I know how much you need to drink watching this show, and my, my wallet <laughs> can only afford so much. <laughs> well, Eric, once again, thank you so much for uh, for stopping by. I want to say Eric. I looked over. I, I, I got Eric Bischoff on my screen. Uh, <laughs> if I had Bischoff's hair, I would be the happiest man <laughs> in the world. <laughs> well, Robert, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, Nate's not here, so I don't know how to how to end this show. Typically, he'll he'll read the song lyrics to something. So, uh, I guess I'll just say Maria, Maria. 
last week on Nitro, I proved to the entire world that at any given time, I could become the WCW champion. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this, this.